The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The bar is, can be, quite a cutthroat profession, both with your opponents and your competitors. I found people who treated me in the same competitive or confrontational way as they did pre-accident, easier to deal with. The people I found more difficult to deal with were those who professed to be very sympathetic and they were going to be very supportive, but turned out not to be. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the episode. My name is Yasmin, one of your hosts for The Hearing Podcast, and my guest today is Mark Henderson. Mark is a media and human rights barrister practicing at Doughty Street Chambers. So Mark and my conversation, because we're both wheelchair users, it did focus a lot on our common experiences as wheelchair users and going back into the legal profession as disabled legal professionals. And before this interview, we had a lot of talking points. We wanted to get into some of the libel cases that Mark has been involved with, very high profile clients that he's worked with. But actually where the conversation ended up is talking practically exclusively about how we improve disability inclusion in the bar and the legal profession generally, how to ensure that it's not just the individual disabled person who has the duty, responsibility to try and improve access and talk about disability and health, but actually it's everybody's responsibility, whether you're the judge, the clerk, other barristers involved in the case. And Mark's work on the disability panel at the Bar Council was really interesting. So we talked a little bit about his involvement and how things have improved for the profession for disabled people. So please do enjoy this episode. If you have any feedback or any comments, contact us in the usual way. Enjoy. The Hearing. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Henderson. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on this episode. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. And it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you, Hasman. Thank you very much. Well, we were chatting before, weren't we? And we're both wheelchair users. That's the first thing to say. And that's how we came to know each other. I, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but the world of spinal cord injury is a pretty small one. And even smaller within that world is those who are legal professionals within the spinal cord injury community. And I think it was through that. don't know how, maybe it was training or I think it was through that. It was probably through LinkedIn following becoming a full-time wheelchair user after my accident. I ultimately became a chair of um, Doughty Street First Disability Working Group. So I think we were looking for disability equality training. And that's how I first got in touch with you for advice. We've known each other now for probably two or three years, something like that. But I don't think we've actually met in person. It's a strange world we're living in. It is such a strange world because I feel like I know you quite well. I know. So many of your comments about life pre and post spinal cord injury on blogs on LinkedIn and things accord with mine. But yeah, I don't think we have met in real life. Yeah, such is the world we're living in. Well, we'll we will get into that, you know, how life is before and afterwards. But the first question I'd like to ask you, Mark, so that we can find out a little bit about your background. Could you tell us a little bit about your career path into law? Because you're a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers currently, but what motivated you to get into law, first of all? So I think growing up, uh, 
in Ayr, which is a sort of a seaside town in Scotland, most are parents in the sort of Scottish middle class want their children to be either doctors or lawyers, and I knew I didn't want to be a doctor, so... There was always a general assumption that I would be a lawyer um, when I was at school, but I knew very little about it. Again, partly due to their pushing, I applied for Oxford. Um, I ended up going there but to read law, but at the age of 17, because uh I was young for my year in school and you progress more quickly in Scotland through the stages. And I was from a state school that had never sent a pupil to Oxbridge and I had no idea about the English class system about which people talked incessantly in Oxford. So I had a fairly miserable time there in the late 1980s and everyone there certainly doing law, was eagerly applying for city, for city solicitors, which at the time following uh, the changes under Thatcher were just growing massively and offering what were then huge salaries. I knew I didn't want to do that. And I ended up leaving Oxford, wishing I'd gone to a normal university and not having a clue what I wanted to do. I moved to London. Stonewall had just been set up to fight Section 28. And I started off volunteering for Stonewall. And they encouraged me to uh, apply to work with the Parliamentary Labour Party, gave me a list of MPs that they suggested, on which were a few, including Keith Vaz and Tony Blair, I sort of sent my CV to all of them and Keith Vaz gave me an offer which I accepted just before I got one from Tony Blair, which might have led to a different career path. But the advantage of working for Keith was that I was his only London assistant and he immediately started leading a campaign around the um, closure of BTCI, the bank, which was a huge story in the early 1990s. So I was immediately having meetings with the um, Chancellor, with Keith, and uh, sort of writing um, press releases, which would be front-page news the next day. But once that initial excitement was over um, and we got into the grind of life as a backbencher and then as a junior uh, spokesperson I became frustrated firstly with the level of uh, politicking inside the um, House of Commons and the parliamentary parties which reminded me of sort of the hacks at university uh, some, and was something that I was no good at, certainly for myself, as opposed to advising other people. Yes. And also in terms of affecting change, we were waiting for an election that would be in three or four years' time. And in the meantime, all we did was do press releases and initiatives, which we hoped would get some coverage and traction. 
And I came to see that if I wanted to have a concrete impact on actually um, changing people's lives or requiring the government to do things as opposed to nudging public opinion that might ultimately cause them to do things, then I ought to be a lawyer after all. So I then decided to go to the bar. I did bar school in, I think it was 93 to 94. I applied. It was probably easier in those days than now, but I still applied for um, probably about 100 pupillages, um, of which I got only two offers. Uh, one was for a aviation specialist set uh, in which I did my first six, and the other was Doughty Street in which I did my second six in 1995. And then I wasn't taken on by Doughty Street or indeed the aviation set uh, from pupillage, so after squatting at Doughty Street, I went to Mitre House, which was a brilliant, small, radical left-wing set, uh, which has also now disintegrated, but uh, which um, quite a few people at liberal sets have spent some time at. So I was there for two years, and then I went back to Doughty Street in 1998, and I've been there since. Gosh, wow. So you really were thrust into the deep end at the start of your career, you know, with, with high profile, well, certainly high profile people now, but really getting into the nitty gritty very early on. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting background. And and I know you specialise in media and human rights now. That's right, isn't it? That's right, yeah. So you've, you've been at Doughty Street for, what is it, 20, 25 years, is it? Yeah, I think it is. Um, maths is really not my strong point, but it must, <laughs> Mine it must, you can probably tell. It must be quarter of a century almost, even since my return to Doughty Street. Yeah, sure. And um, so I want to get into, because we, we've got a lot of commonality here, where we can see the challenges and the changes pre and post injury. And I know you had your accident, I believe, in 2017? 2018. Um, 2018 apologies and so and now you're a full-time wheelchair user like myself so what sort of challenges did you have post-accident in the legal profession I know that's a a big question and we could probably fill the next podcast episode with that but just if you could just highlight a few things that you think our listeners would be interested in what what challenges have you experienced yeah I could do a sort of (laughs) one hour monologue now (laughs) but yeah, I was had the accident in August 2018 um, in Spain uh, and then spent almost six months in hospital and uh, the last three months in the uh, London spinal unit on for rehab in Stanmore, uh, which I think you were at as well, Yasmin? I was indeed, yeah. Very, very... Uh small world yeah so i had a complete spinal cord injury which means i'm completely paralyzed from the waist and also a serious skull fracture as a result of which i have no hearing in the left ear and impaired hearing in the right ear and a significant brain injury so i 
was coming back to the bar with a range of um, physical, sensory and invisible uh, disabilities, which sort of intersect with each other, uh, as I quickly found, because from the very first uh, function, I think for the media team that I attended um, in Chambers, as a wheelchair user, you are sort of the height of a 10-year-old, which doesn't matter in many situations, um, but when you're in a function where other people are standing up, or as I've subsequently found, when you are outside court and engaged in discussions with opponent, maybe a leader, and your client's professional and lay, then it can be an issue. Uh, when you add to that my hearing impairment, uh, you get people sort of shouting down to me um, in a way that looks like a caricature of how people might interact with someone in a wheelchair. It's been a great challenge. I mean, I had obviously practiced for, again, attempting to do the maths, uh, almost quarter of a century since I started my second six in 1995 as a non-disabled barrister. And frankly, I found that challenging enough. Going back, just the, the basics, like whether I would get into a courtroom were challenging. Uh, I found, I mean, the bar is, can be, uh, quite a cutthroat profession, um, both um, with your opponents and your competitors. I found people who treated me in the same competitive or confrontational way as they did pre-accident, easier to deal with, if anything. The people I found more difficult to deal with were those who professed to uh, be very sympathetic and um, they were going to be very supportive, but turned out not to be. I, this is obviously the, well, not obviously, but um, sorry, but this is the second um, major protected ground that I have acquired. Uh, I came to the bar as a LGBT person in the early to mid-1990s when there was a lot of discrimination uh, still on grounds of um, sexual orientation. Uh, and I was actually, the first EDI work I did was on a um, subcommittee chaired by Sir Stephen Sedley, um, which was tasked with including sexual orientation on the what was then the Bar Council's Equality Code for the first time. Growing up uh, as LGBT in the 1980s and early 90s, I had a instinct as to whether people were actually homophobic or not, and it did it. And I found that sometimes the people who talked the best talk were um, homophobic in many ways, whereas uh, some who didn't talk the talk were actually quite supportive. 
and I found a similar thing on disability because on disability rights, certainly as in 2018-19 after the accident, I feel like we're in a similar position to what I was experiencing working on sexual orientation in the mid-1990s, where people will profess to be very sympathetic, wanting to be very, quote, tolerant, but in reality are simply are struggling to accept um, disability as a protected ground and disability discrimination as seriously as they might accept uh, racism and sexism. I've certainly seen in articles that you've written that you describe disability as very much the poor relation when we when we compare it to other perhaps protected characteristics. Yeah, no, Faisal, uh, that's a description also used by uh, Faisal Sadiq, who's the really inspirational chair of the Bar Council Disability Panel. And it describes the sort of struggle, I think, that has been waged pretty much successfully by the Disability Panel to have disability discrimination recognized as something which needs to be treated as seriously at the bar as other protected grounds. Yeah, absolutely. I think that perhaps stems from, because I was involved with the legally disabled research, which I know you're you're aware of, where the Law Society did some work with Cardiff University and we looked at around 300 um, legal professionals, you know, barristers, solicitors, paralegals. Um, they're all disabled, whether they have a visible or a non-visible disability, around 300 of them. And what the research found is that disabled legal professionals are largely unexpected in the profession. So whether you show up at court and the lift's not working, you know, whether you show up at chambers, um, wherever you, you go in your professional life, you're largely unexpected and therefore you're very poorly catered for because you're not really thought of at all or it's an afterthought. Um, and that probably chimes with your experience. I, I read that your first case post-accident was in the RCJ, I believe, and it had to be abandoned, that hearing, because the, the lift was broken. Is that, is that, am I recollecting that correctly? Yes, that's right. Um, that actually had a significant impact on how I got involved in campaigning on access and the legal professions. Um, I was attending a procedural claim where I was defending um, Jeremy Corbyn in a case uh, brought against him for something he said on the Andrew Marr show, our leader of the Labour Party. So quite a significant case. Um, and I attended uh, along the accessible route that we were given by the RCJ and found that the platform lift was broken. Um, further inquiry showed that staff knew it was broken, but they had no idea how to fix it, nor did they think to say that the accessible route uh, didn't actually have a working lift. Um, my opponent uh, was also um, a wheelchair user, but with assistance, he was able to um, walk up the steps um so he got there i didn't what are the chances of that two wheelchair users yeah it wasn't yeah. a good day for the rcj that day now he i didn't give it to the legal press he says he didn't give it to the legal press but anyway it got to the legal press who 
did a story on it. Uh, and as a result, we got some very nice correspondence from the RCJ and the senior master. And uh, I was invited to join the Bar okay. Council Disability Panel. And um, through that, I now sit with my colleague Marissa Cohen on the RCJ's Accessibility Project Board, where we're working to improve accessibility and the disability panel generally is looking at what we can do to ensure that these sorts of initiatives, which we've had before, uh, don't become talking shops and certainly that we don't become um, sort of window dressing on their talking shops and that there is buy-in both by the judiciary and by those who hold the purse strings at HMCTS. What changes have you seen then since you've been on the disability panel? Have you seen some improvements in terms of accessibility and understanding of disability, anticipating making adjustments for, for barristers? I have seen improvements in, in terms of my own experience of practicing. There's been a huge improvement. Uh, when I started off, um, we got, we got over the getting me physically to the courtroom after, after that, but it took a while, um, for both staff at the RCJ and Clark's to get the hang of dealing with the fact that the wheelchair user didn't just need to get into the public gallery to watch, but um, might actually be the advocate for the party and need to get into a position where they could make submissions from an equivalent position to their opponent so that there was not yeah. only fairness but the appearance of equality of arms in the hearing, because it's not only disability discrimination towards the barrister who, as I was in the past, is required to make submissions from a folding table in the corridor yes. because the council benches can't accommodate a wheelchair. It's also unfair to the client who has engaged a wheelchair-using barrister on the basis that they will be able to present their case fairly and effectively. Uh, so that was a big challenge uh, on getting people to understand that wheelchair accessibility was not getting through the door, but was ensuring that you could make submissions from an equivalent and fair position. I've also had a mixed but improving experience of asking for reasonable adjustments from my opponents so that, for example, where we're in a court that was designed for counsel to stand and be pretty much at eye level with the judge, uh, if I am unable to be put in that position, then both of us, certainly if it's a case with a single opponent, uh, should be seated to make our submissions, yeah. things like that are really important and why we need a lot more education about the responsibility on barristers, both through their responsibility for the way chambers are yeah. run and in the way they operate their own practices yeah. 
to make reasonable adjustments for disability. I'm also, though, acutely aware that the reasonable adjustments that are made in the RCJ, um, particularly for me now, which are very effective, which I appreciate, are made as a result of a bit of a struggle and involve special measures like ensuring that I often, I always have one of the big courts that are used for inquests and the like, which are the only ones where the council positions have tables that are movable to enable a wheelchair user to get in. Even these courts, which are now designated the accessible courts, have uh, double sets of doors which are not automated, so therefore need one and preferably two people to hold them to enable me to get in and out. And one of the problems we face on things like the accessibility project for the RCJ is that they are understandably looking for quick wins. So we might hear about an initiative for sunflower lanyards, and that's great. But then we say, but that really doesn't help people who are physically blocked from accessing the court or when they get into the court accessing the council benches and then we get into whether they actually have any budget for reason for these reasonable adjustments that are actually difficult to do but which are absolutely fundamental for the wheelchair using barristers and advocates and solicitors who need them just so that um some listeners may not be familiar with the sunflower lanyard, which is essentially a, a lanyard which indicates you have a non-visible disability to prevent people almost outing themselves or to be asked intrusive questions or to talk about their health condition in any detail. But that lanyard indicates, you know, um, that they may have some non-visible um, impairment or condition. Um, so it makes it easier to sort of talk about adjustments in that way. It's really important and useful But it's also important that things like that and um, initiatives to encourage neurodiverse people are not used by either HMCTS or chambers and law firms to say, well, look, we've done two disability initiatives, so that relieves us of the responsibility of dealing with people who have more difficult disabilities for us, like wheelchair users, where we actually have to spend money to respect their disability rights. Yeah, because yeah, it sounds a bit tick boxy then. You know, we've done that right next initiative rather than actually looking at inclusion as a whole. But what I'm hearing, and I certainly can resonate with a lot of those experiences you've just spoken about, Mark, is a lot of this is very energy expensive. You know, worrying about sometimes the transport system, how you get to a court or chambers, and then being concerned about how you physically get in, if lifts are working, all of these things take away our time from actually doing the job that we we need to do. And it, it makes me think that this is really an obligation that not just us as disabled people and other people with disabilities have to take on. This is a responsibility, you know, they, they are part of the cog in the wheel, the clerk, the court users, the judges all have to be on board and ensure 
you know, the the fact that you have that equality of arms so that you can just get on with the job that you're you've been instructed to do. Yeah, I mean that's so that's so true. Obviously, disabled people will also be managing their disabilities, so might have had to manage a care team dealing with disability routines before they go to court, maybe struggling to do what are in any event challenge would have been challenging cases for a non-disabled barrister, but are particularly challenging to to manage on top of disabilities. And then, I mean, in the early days, I would get well-meaning suggestions from clerks saying, well, we just can't trust anything the RCJ say. So what we'll do is we'll meet you an hour before court starts and um, we'll find a way of getting you to court. And I'm like, there wasn't a single case before my accident where I managed to get to court all prepared an hour before it started. And if I'm the advocate, I'm usually preparing submissions, dealing with last minute points. Um, from my solicitors, if I'm being led, I'm often being asked to look at last-minute things by my leader. Um, and it is, again, quite triggering to have Fair. that attitude. Well, this is very challenging for the, um, to deal with a wheelchair user, but presumably all we've got to do is get him into court. And he's Fair. not, rather than thinking of him as the barrister who's still up, uh, managing a fast-moving case and is not in a position to be sat there being pushed hither um, here and there an hour before the hearing starts. Mm, absolutely. Well, that probably leads me to the next question is what can Chambers do then practically to support disabled barristers? You know, a few. I mean, there's many things, I'm sure, but bearing in mind what you've just said, how do we improve that in terms of thinking if you're a clerk, or a leading barrister, how do we improve that access for disabled barristers? We started at Doughty Street when I returned to work in a position where there was very little in place. Uh, I couldn't even get out of my room to go to the toilet unassisted because um, there was a large uh, heavy door which was curved and list and part of the listed features and it took chambers a very long time to decide that um they were brave enough to put an automatic door opener on that door so i started off um being trapped in my room needing the clerk's assistance to go to the toilet being in a position where I would be completely unable to get out of chambers out of hours if there was a fire or other emergency or even out of my room and where we hadn't had any sort of disability awareness training in chambers the Disability Working Group, which was subsequently set up and which I chair, had a had and has a very committed group of barristers and staff working on it. Uh, we have, somewhat to our surprise, found that um, the government's disability confidence scheme has been quite useful. Uh, it's 
heavily criticised in many quarters, and rightly so, as being something which, other than the highest of the three levels, can be self-accredited, so marking your own homework, and therefore uh, organisations can um, self-accredit having done very little. But we started from the outset um, by thinking how can we use these criteria to do as much as possible in chambers rather than as little as possible to tick the boxes. And the fact that it's such a low-level basic government scheme, which is widely adopted, certainly in the public sector and increasingly in the private sector, meant that the low bar was actually quite useful in terms of pushing through changes like the guaranteed interview scheme, which might otherwise have been um, delayed for for years while people discussed how it might fit in an overarching EDI strategy. So we found it actually really useful to leverage change and ensure that there are not only the guaranteed interview scheme, but that we advertise um, in uh, places targeted at disabled people. We have um, the disability awareness training, including the brilliant training that you've uh, delivered to Chambers, Yasmin. Um, and I feel that that is, uh, to coin a phrase, there's a lot done, but a lot still to do. Um, but it is having a real effect in chambers and we are in the process of making chambers more accessible both in terms of policy and practice and in terms of uh, adjustments to the physical infrastructure to make it more accessible both to barristers such as myself but also and particularly to disabled users of chambers who now have a significantly better experience than they would have done, though there are still a lot of challenges, including how we would give a fair experience of pupillage to a wheelchair using pupil who won pupillage in the pupillage round. Yeah, the disability confidence scheme is a good starting point because I find that a lot of chambers or firms want to do something when it comes to disability inclusion, but they often don't know where to start. And it does provide that framework and you can meet certain criteria and then go up the different levels so it does give you that starting point which is very useful so that that's so i guess that one bit of advice is you know get involved with the scheme for chambers the other thing i would say is uh one of the major step forward uh that we've achieved in the bar council disability panel is the publication of the bar council's reasonable adjustment um guidance uh which is on the bar council website as one of the as one of its equality and diversity guides and that includes really useful information about the duty which is both regulatory a professional duty and a legal duty under the equality act which applies to all barristers individually and therefore to their running of chambers uh to make reasonable adjustments both anticipatory for clients and other users and um, 
to respond to the needs of anyone in the chamber's workforce, including staff, pupils, yes. and uh, barristers. And also, and I think really importantly, as a matter of good practice, that chambers should think in advance about how they would give a fair pupillage to a disabled person who won pupillage. Because if they wait until they've awarded the pupillage, then there may well be too little time to gain the necessary consent to make adjustments to the buildings. So I know the percentage of barristers who declare that they have a disability is pretty low. I believe it's about 3% currently. Correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, Mark. You may have some more up-to-date figures. So I also now sit on the Bar Standards Board Disability Task Force. And while the BSB has had some stick uh, over the last year, I have to say that I have found them really receptive and keen to move forward in terms of uh, promoting disability equality uh, at the bar. Their latest diversity at the bar report for 2022 shows um well, it includes figures for um, which do and do not uh, exclude those who provided no information. But even taking the higher figures that you get when you exclude people who have not provided information, 12.5% of pupils, 7.5% of non-KC barristers, and 4% of KCs declared a disability as of December 2022. Yeah. The proportion of pupils declaring a disability was 3.8% higher than in December 2021. And that certainly reflects my experience that with the increased uh, recognition of disability rights at the bar, the number of openly disabled people going through the legal education system and applying for pupillage is much greater. But the respective figures for non-KCs showed a year-in-year -year increase of only 0.5% and for KCs only 0.1%. So you see a really dramatic reduction in the proportion of disabled people at the bar as you work through pupillage, juniors and KCs. And also, and more worryingly, you see that it's getting better much slower as you go up the levels of seniority and it's really not getting better at all amongst KCs, not by 1% improvement. Yeah, and there could be many reasons for that low declaration rate. I mean, it's certainly well below the 19% of adults we know of working age who have a disability. But, you know, various reasons could be people don't identify with the label of disabled, the fear of stigma, prejudice, discrimination, the bar is incredibly competitive, the fear of, of being perceived as not being able to do the job or needing something different. There's a whole host of reasons why that percentage figure may be quite low. Or people may not just know what support is available, what adjustments are possibly available or not know that they actually come, their impairment may be covered under the Equality Act, constitute a disability. So there's a the whole host of reasons for that. Yasmin, as you, as you point out in your training, um, most disabled people 
of working age actually acquired their disability while they were of working age. And one sees from these figures that the problem in terms of people apparently not wanting to declare their disability is greater amongst barristers the more senior you get. And that's quite interesting. It suggests that older barristers, for want of a better word, are less able to see being disabled as a positive identity and to assert their rights. They're more concerned about how this may be used against them in the competitive world of the bar or how instructing solicitors will perceive them. Whereas pupils who you would expect and who are more concerned about the nightmare that is getting pupillage and then the constant assessment that is the experience of pupillage are better able to declare their disability and present as disabled people. The other alternative analysis is that in the past, and this is quite possible, uh, people who acquired disabilities that led to serious impairments like becoming wheelchair users or uh, becoming deaf simply dropped out of the profession because they thought the bar was not a place where you could practice with those sorts of disabilities. And that's why we're seeing the increase getting towards the percentage of disabled people in the working age population in pupils but less so amongst junior barristers and even less so amongst KCs. Mm, that's really interesting, is it? This new generation obviously have a a different expectation, perhaps, or a, a different sense of their own identity and what they need in contrast, perhaps, to older people in the profession who may view their disability as more of a negative. That is very interesting. I think that's right. And, I mean, I have spoken on a number of panels uh, with some of the disabled pupils or future pupils uh, who have set up organizations like um, the Association of Disabled Lawyers and bringing disability to the bar. Yeah. And I am constantly amazed and impressed by how articulate they are about disability rights, um, often putting me to shame, and how willing they are to present as disabled people despite going through what for them is the nightmare of pupillage round and then pupillage itself while managing all these disabilities, which I find more than challenging enough, um, Um, coming back to the bar with a quarter of a century of practice under my belt. But I'm also quite grateful to them because one of the cop-outs for the bar generally for chambers and I think for the inns in terms of their estates can be to resort to the nature of our profession as self-employed people who ultimately have to fend for themselves. And for pupillage, that is no longer the case in terms of uh, professional duties and regulatory requirements. So for these pupils to be asserting their disability rights is really useful 
to me as a established, so-called established practitioner, in that we can reference the rights that they clearly have. The inns and chambers and the bar council talk about what they're doing on things like social mobility, and yet they sometimes can appear to be washing their hands of the fact that they don't allow physical mobility for wheelchair users and others with mobility impairments to get into chambers in the inns and many of their facilities. Yeah, and it's interesting because disability is often is the largest minority group, but we're often the forgotten group exactly. as well. And that really comes across when people are sort of thinking about policies or inclusion strategies, initiatives. Again, this came out from the Legally Disabled Research that there's usually a hierarchy when it comes to looking at other protected characteristics. All of them are important, but disability is often the forgotten group or little is done in that area, which actually exacerbates the feelings of isolation and, you know, feeling actually maybe I'm not really important, you know, I'm not really thought of. And that really can exacerbate those feelings of isolation for people who may be dealing with their own, you know, negative self-talk um, around disability or health issues. Yeah. It's not just the failure to make reasonable adjustments. It's also the failure to take disability discrimination seriously enough. Uh, I mean, even in liberal sets such as my own, um, there is now a clear recognition that race discrimination, for example, is a serious problem within chambers as well as uh, through the bar and society that needs to be tackled. But I find the same sort of experience when talking about disability discrimination as I found when talking about sexual orientation discrimination in the early 1990s when I say that I am treated differently by some people when I present to them uh, in a wheelchair from when I presented as a non-disabled barrister pre-accident, I will often get a reaction which is, amounts to laughter and don't be so silly. Yeah. So there's a real reluctance to understand and then take account of societal ableism and ableist tropes, whether you describe them as conscious, unconscious or implicit, doesn't really matter in the end. But there's a unwillingness to accept that these also exist within the bar, within chambers at all ends of the yeah. spectrum of chambers. Yeah. And I also think if we look at those identities individually, so for example, race, sexual orientation, disability, etc., that really ignores the full individuals, the intersectionality that identity plays into somebody's identity. So for example, I'm not just a woman, I'm a wheelchair user, I'm a disabled woman and I'm of mixed race heritage. So I've got lots of things, lots of boxes ticked, but it, it sort of ignores the full individuality of the person, um, which really, you know, it doesn't help if you just say, right, we've dealt with race, we'll move on to something else. We've got to look at all of these intersecting identities to really understand people's experiences and how they move around in the world and how they're perceived as well. And the biases, as you say, whether implicit, unconscious, overtly, overt or covert, they're, they're still there Yeah, for those, for those groups. Yeah. I mean, I'm disabled, bisexual, 
ethnically Irishmen, and all these things can attract tropes and quite often these intersect. Uh, I'm an ambassador for Power Pride, which recently had its post-pandemic relaunch at Tackney Town Hall, an event which I was very pleased that Doughty Street financially supported, as well as my local council, Hackney. And we had a great speech from the mayor of Hackney, which included defending our community from the sort of reawakening of the tropes um, in the of the 80s and 90s. But there's a real intersection in many of these things. And I wrote an article for Forward Magazine, which is the magazine of the Spinal Injuries Association, on which I, for which I'm an elected trustee, about the experiences of disabled uh, LGBTQ people. And the experience of spinal cord injury, where one often, often indeed probably generally, goes overnight from being physically non-disabled to being um, a full-time or part-time wheelchair user, has for many uh, queer people the effect of pushing them back into the closet. I spoke to a number of people who explained how over the years they had um, become out uh identifying as gay or queer, um, being active in scenes such as London or Manchester. Then they get their spinal cord injury, maybe in their 40s, and suddenly they are in a flat which has become inaccessible. They are a prisoner in their flat for months, and then they end up having to move um, back close to family who can care for them, uh, because they can't get adequate care through their local authority or the NHS, and they describe an experience of beco- becoming disabled and that pushing them back into the closet uh, because they move back to their hometown, maybe, or to an in- unfamiliar area where they feel uncomfortable um, identifying as queer and also experience daily issues, for example, with carers who may be consciously or unconsciously homophobic who see every aspect of their lives. Therein lies the intersection, actually, of people's identities. I read that article. It's a bri- Perhaps we can put that in the show notes for people. It's a really interesting article. We could talk for a long time, uh, Mark, and we've barely scratched the surface. We've talked a lot about disability inclusion, but I, I really wanted our listeners, both who may not have a disability or those who may to really understand, you know, that lived experience as well. But final question for you, because I I can see time is not with us, but you've given some advice what chambers can do. But what if somebody has a disability, whether it's visible or non-visible, and they want to be a barrister, what piece of advice would you give them? What do you think would be useful for them to hear from you, having a quarter of a century under your belt? So... I don't really feel qualified to advise students and pupils based on my quarter of a century of experience as a non-disabled barrister. As a 
disabled barristers, I've already said, I'm actually really grateful to the students and pupils who are coming through at the moment and asserting their disability rights. One of the big issues for disabled people in which we're often asked when doing uh, seminars and talks is whether to declare disabilities on the application form, whether they are visible or unseen disabilities. Often the, de the default advice from uh, practitioners is, of course, you should declare it and the bar must be open to everyone and nobody should be advising. I remember a, a Twitter discussion in which very senior members of the profession were expressing shock that someone had suggested that a wheelchair using pupil would face a tough time at the bar. And I thought, though, I thought best not to engage in a Twitter spat, but what I thought was that that's fine for you to say, and I probably agree with you, but it would be better if you were putting energy into holding the Bar Standards Court, Board, the Bar Council, Chambers, the Inns, to, and the court system to account to actually make it easier for wheelchair-using pupils to have the same experience. Disabled people inevitably will have bigger challenges in terms of whether to declare it. I think that must be an individual assessment. When I was doing my pupillage round in whatever it must have been, 1994, I declared my sexual orientation, for example, in my application to Doughty Street, but didn't declare it in my application to the aviation set because I thought it might have been unhelpful. And these were the only two pupillages I got. So I'm not going to tell disabled people that you must certainly declare every disability yeah. they're entitled to make their own assessment. But... For the increasing number of chambers who are operating a guaranteed interview scheme for disabled people, then it is very useful if you can declare your disability. Uh, if, you, if there are reasonable adjustments that chambers can make in the pupillage application process, then it's also very useful if you can um, declare your reasonable adjustment. And I think Chambers are getting better in terms of how they think about disability rights, disability inclusion, and dealing with disability discrimination. As of 2018, it was quite a while since I had felt that I actively had to deal with discrimination against myself on grounds of sexual orientation. And I hope that one day I'll be able to think the same about disability discrimination. Well, that's a hopeful message to end with. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been fascinating. Really interested to hear your insights and your experiences. And thank you for being a wonderful guest on The Hearing. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So thank you again for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, the usual way is to contact us, thehearingattr.com. And we'd love to hear your feedback or comments that you have. And we hope to get Mark back as a future guest. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing.
or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.